This is Tailgate Till May. I'm your host, Stephen Gorgie, and I'm back on a Monday. The Monday after the Elite Eight, that is, to talk about what you care about most in the world of college sports. And I think you already know what I'm going to hit on today. That is the Elite Eight and looking ahead to the men's Final Four. What a tournament we've had. What a weekend we've had. And I can't wait to get into all of it. First, as a reminder, you can subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it. If you like the show, the best thing that you can do to help me out, to help the show out, is tell a friend who also likes college sports, who you think might be interested in the content we're creating here. Send them a link, uh, ask them to listen, and then if you can leave us a five-star review and subscribe, that would be fantastic as well. You can also find me on Twitter, at Gorgon Sports, that's where I leave my various musings about the world of college sports and my gambling picks, too. So if you like what you hear right here on this show, follow me on Twitter, at Gorgon Sports. So let's r- jump right into this thing. And before we get into the nitty-gritty of the Elite Eight, I want to start with some big-picture things. And I want to just start out by talking about how historic this Final Four that we're about to have is. And it's a Final Four that consists of Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, Miami, and UConn. This is the first time in the history of the Final Four that no one, two, or three seeds will be in it. It's the first Final Four since 1970 where we have three teams making their first Final Four appearance. We will certainly, 100%, we're guaranteed to have a first-time national champion head coach emerged from this tournament. And then as far as some of these programs in it, a couple crazy stats I just want to drop here. Florida Atlantic didn't have a basketball program, period, until the 1988-1989 season. They didn't join Division I until the 1993-1994 season. Miami dropped the sport of men's basketball after the ni- after 1971 and didn't bring it back until the 1985-1986 season. They went over a decade without sponsoring the sport of men's basketball, and now they are in a Final Four, their first Final Four in school history. Then San Diego State, a much better recent history than FAU and Miami, but San Diego State, historically, is not the greatest program, San Diego State, the San Diego State Aztecs, did not make their first appearance in an AP Top 25 poll until the 2010-2011 season. So there were all sorts of these great stats going around the college sports internet last night that just kind of illustrate what a wild and crazy year this was. There was another stat going around that I can't quite find right now, but basically just shows that All of these teams have been in danger at some point during the tournament. UConn was down at halftime to Iona. FAU could have easily lost its first-round game to Memphis. I mean, Memphis had that game. Memphis easily could have taken down FAU. Uh, San Diego State. San Diego State could have lost to Creighton, but they were also down in in their first-round game against College of Charleston. And then Miami, of course, had a huge comeback win in the Elite Eight against Texas, but was in trouble in its first-round game against Drake. So, you know, things go uh, differently here or there, and one 
of these teams doesn't make the Final Four. Maybe none of these teams make the Final Four. But we've been talking about it all year. That's how thin the margins are in this sport right now and how easy it is for the unpredictable to happen. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So the first big picture topic I want to touch on is whether this Final Four is good for the sport or not. Because that's been the big debate, it seems, over the last 24 hours. And that's why I'm really excited to do this show, you know, not immediately after the Miami-Texas game ended, but uh, 24 hours later to kind of give it some room to breathe, for me to think about some of these bigger picture things and have a good discussion about it. So is this good for the sport? Is it good for the sport that we have all this new blood, all these new programs, some programs that frankly don't have the biggest fan bases? Is it good for the sport or is it not? Is it enjoyable or is it not? The thing that I see getting brought up a lot in terms of, well, this isn't good for the sport, is what CBS's ratings are going to be for this game. And my response to that is, unless you work for CBS, why do you care what the ratings are going to be for this game? If it's something that you are going to sit down and enjoy, that you are going to watch, that you are interested in, why does it matter whether anybody else is interested in it or not? We are living in a time, in a day and age, where there are so many entertainment options, there are so many things to do. I mean, how many streaming services you have? Off the top of my head, I can count, I think we have at least five different streaming services that we subscribe to. Probably more. Probably more. So there is something for everybody out there, and maybe for some people, college basketball is just not their bag. It's just not their thing. Maybe they like sports, they like basketball, they don't like college basketball. They like the NBA better. And you know what? There's plenty of people who will tell you they like basketball, but they have no interest in college basketball. And that's fine. There's Tons of people will tell you they like college football but don't want to watch the NFL. That's fine, too. There's a, another group of people that will say they can watch everything on Netflix and Hulu but won't watch a, a single sporting event all year. And that is fine as well. You don't have to yuck somebody else's yum. Let everybody like what they like. So, yeah, I get that CBS would prefer to have – Duke, Kansas, UCLA, and North Carolina in the Final Four, I'm sure they would. That's huge brands. That's big fan bases. Uh, it's names people know. But you know what? These teams that are in the Final Four earn their way there. They earn their way there with their play on the court. Duke had a chance to make the Final Four. They lost. They lost to Tennessee. Alabama, the number one overall seed, could have made the Final Four. They also lost. They lost to one of the teams that will be there, San Diego State. Should I have rooted for Alabama to win that game because it was going to help CBS's ratings? I don't understand that at all. San Diego State earned it on the court, and they did everything they needed to do to get to this game. And, and I'm not going to sit here and complain because they don't have a big enough brand name. Like, the last time I checked... I don't watch sports because of brand names. I watch sports because of the competition. I watch sports because of the emotion behind it. I watch sports because it means something to groups of people. It means something. San Diego State, I say this all the time when I talk about college football. You know, there might not be as many San Diego State fans 
than there are as there are Alabama fans or, or there are Duke fans or North Carolina fans or Kentucky fans. But the San Diego State Aztecs basketball program means as much to one person, some person out there, as Alabama football means to somebody else out there, as Kentucky basketball means to somebody else out there. And I can personally understand that very well because one of the things that the sports teams that I care about and love the most is Maryland football. And I have no illusions that Maryland football will ever compete for a national championship, but I care about Maryland football just as much as somebody out there cares about Alabama. Now there's, at Alabama, 100,000 of me. There's more of me. But there is somebody out there who lives, breathes, eats, sleeps San Diego State Aztecs hoops. FAU Owls Athletics. And far be it from me to sit here and give a lecture on how, well, this just isn't good for the sport. While that person's team went out, earned it on the court, and has given them the experience of a lifetime. So from my perspective, I'm never going to say this is bad for the sport because the TV ratings are potentially going to be down because there are not enough big brands involved in this thing. My second point on this, and why I think this is actually a good thing for the sport, is it does give all these fan bases hope. It gives people hope that there's a reason to invest in your team. There's a reason to trudge out, trudge out in the middle of a snowstorm in February to go watch your team at home because this might be the year. It's an experience that for as much as I love college football, it's severely lacking. You start the season in college football knowing that unless you are one of five, maybe ten teams, the best you can hope for is a trip to a warm weather bowl destination to play a meaningless exhibition game. Something like this, where Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, and Miami basketball all make the Final Four gives fans hope that their team can do it too. It gives fans hope that there's a, there's a reason to go out to the games, to buy season tickets, to invest, to watch, to support their team. And that's really all you can ask for as a fan is some hope. Some hope that this could happen to you too. And you know what? I bet if you ask an FAU fan, win or lose in the Final Four, what that triplet was like to Madison Square Garden, what that weekend in New York was like, watching their team cut down the nets, I bet you they will tell you it was incredible. And it was something that they wouldn't trade for anything else sports-wise in the world. And just to know that there's other programs out there, there's A-10 programs like maybe a Dayton, Dayton has been a very historically good program, strong program within the A-10. They haven't quite gotten over the hump in recent years. They, the COVID season, that was a year where they had an outstanding chance to do something, something major. And uh, the tournament was canceled that year, which is extraordinarily unfortunate for them. But it gives a Dayton fan reason to think, okay, one year this can be us. It gives a Northwestern fan, a Northwestern fan base, 
that has only been to two NCAA tournaments ever, a reason to believe. If Florida Atlantic can do it, we can do this too. So I think from that perspective, it's it's really good. And then my third thing about this is, and why I'm excited for this Final Four, why I think it is a good thing, I mean, you essentially have one big bad villain in UConn. And I think UConn is the villain in this Final Four uh, because of how good they are historically, because of Dan Hurley's sideline demeanor, uh, the way he can get animated and really go after the officials at time. I think he's a guy that most people... You know, when they see him for the first time, they see how he coaches, they see how he acts. He's not a warm and cuddly guy. Let's put it that way. He's a guy that that can be off-putting for some. So I think UConn's tradition, the way they've run through this tournament, and then Dan Hurley's sideline demeanor makes UConn the clear villain in this thing. And then you have two pretty clear Cinderella's in FAU and San Diego State, that they're the feel-good story everybody is rooting for. And then Miami falls somewhere in the middle. I mean, Miami is not a certainly not known as a hoops program, a hoops power, um, but they have a really good basketball players, which is the other thing. There are really good players. These are really good teams in this game. And no, it is not going to be a Final Four filled with first-round draft picks. But you know what? I don't think that's bad for college basketball because the reason that I watch college basketball has never been because I'm trying to scout for the NBA. I am trying to... What I want to see when I watch a college basketball game is are really good teams who play together. Maybe they play a unique style, but they are playing to represent universities they are playing because the reason the thing that I find fascinating, intriguing, and interesting about college sports is all of the history that goes into it, all of the passion around the schools and how that passion differs from professional sports, where by and large, fans of college sports seem to have a closer emotional attachment. Uh, to those schools. You have the actual student aspect of it, where you have student uh, student sections, student fan bases, people that actually attend that school that feel like they're a part of that community. College sports represents communities in a way similar to how pro sports do, but I think it goes far above and beyond that. And that's the number one thing I find fascinating about college sports. I know that there is a higher quality of play at the NBA, in the NFL, in Major League Baseball, in the NHL, than the college counterparts of any of those sports. But there's something a little different about college sports when you talk about the history um, and the way it represents communities. The thing that I also tend to find very interesting about college basketball is the variety of styles. And you have this in college football, too, where... You know, at the pro level, everybody tends to essentially be running the same type of stuff, the same schemes, the same styles. In college, that's not the case. You can have a team like San Diego State that is all about defense. They are going to wear you out with defense. It's going to be physical. It's not going to be the most appealing thing to watch. And then you can have a team like UConn 
where UConn is a really good offensive team. They play great defense as well, but they are a really good offensive team. They don't truly have a point guard, but they have a bunch of guys who can attack you. And I I think that contrasting styles combined with that community uh, passion aspect that I talked about is far more appealing to me than just saying like, okay, this guy is going to be in the NBA for the next 15 years, likely an all-star. I need to go see him. Now, that is certainly, um, it's an interesting aspect of college sports. It's a, a reason to watch. I think it enhances it in some way. But that's not, never, that isn't and has never been the driving factor for me in what makes college sports interesting is simply knowing that these are you know, the best players under the age of 22 and that I'm catching somebody early. I'm identifying a talent before his long pro career. For some people, that's the most interesting thing. For me, it never has been. So I, I think watching these contrasting styles and the way that these various programs have been built up, you got the Cinderella's, uh, really FAU is the biggest Cinderella. San Diego State, I want to talk more in depth about them and what they've done, but this is a program that has been built and built and built. UConn, a program that has been at the very highest levels of the sport. I think I feel comfortable calling UConn a blue blood at this point. I feel more comfortable calling UConn a blue blood than I do calling Indiana a blue blood, to be quite honest with you. And But they went through a, a stretch where they were not meeting expectations. Between 2015 and 2021, they made the tournament once. Then they made it back-to-back years, 2021 and 2022. Then again this year, 2023. So they've made it three straight years now. But uh, between 2015, the year after they won the national championship, and the year 2020, the year the tournament was canceled, they only made the tournament one time until they've gone on this current streak of three in a row. And, the, and in 2020, they were very questionable to make the tournament. I don't think they would have. They were 19-12 and 12 overall, 10-8 and eight in the AAC. And UConn left the American, went back to the Big East. Dan Hurley has been building this program. They've made three straight tournament appearances. This is the first time Dan Hurley, as UConn's head coach, has ever gotten them past the first round. Not only are they past the first round, they are in the Final Four. And I think the building aspect of it like that is interesting to me. There are so many more interesting things about college basketball and college sports to me than whether the number one pick in the NBA draft, the number three pick in the NBA draft is going to be playing in the final four. So for me, I understand why some people may not be as interested in this final four, but I I never want to yuck anybody's yum. Everybody has their own tastes. For me, this is about just as much fun as watching the Final Four we did last year where we saw Duke and North Carolina. And that is maybe a bad example because the other thing that I love about college sports is the rivalries. The rivalries that last for years and years and years over generations and generations, almost regardless of who is on the team. It's a fan-driven rivalry, um, and that's something that you just don't have the same of in pro sports. So last year was special with Duke and North Carolina. But if you're just asking me, you know, a random year with Kentucky versus UCLA and Kansas versus uh, 
Ohio State or Kansas versus Indiana, this is just as good to me. They both have their pros and cons, but it's not going to stop me from watching the Final Four, and I don't particularly care if CBS doesn't have the ratings that they want because I don't work for CBS. I am not in charge of their ratings. So from my perspective, this is fine. This is absolutely fine for the sport. If you don't like it, I get it. I like it a lot. If you do like it, don't worry about anybody else. Watch it. Enjoy it. Anybody else can do whatever they want to do. You watch this Final Four. You enjoy it, and I think you'll be happy with it. So let's move on to one more big-picture topic here. I want to look at these four teams and kind of you know what they've done and how whether they are starting something here or this is a one-off. And I want to start with San Diego State because San Diego State is the school that I feel like is really, there's two schools, San Diego State and UConn, that I feel like are really at the start of something here. And San Diego State is at this start of something. Uh, they have an opportunity, now that they've made this Final Four, to take their program to an absolutely another level. Since the 2010-2011 season, when Kawhi Leonard when Kawhi Leonard stepped foot on campus as a freshman, I would take San Diego State over any other non-Power 5 program outside of Gonzaga. Since he stepped on campus in 2010, the Aztecs made every tournament between 2010 and 2015. Uh, then they had a couple down years. Steve Fisher stepped down. Brian Dutcher took over the reins. Took a little bit to get things back rolling, made the tournament in his first year, missed in his second. And then in 2020, much like Dayton, San Diego State was the team that was most hurt by the cancellation of the 2020 NCAA tournament due to the COVID pandemic. They were 30 and 2, 17 and 1 in conference. They had started out the season 26 and 0. They were going to be a number one or two seed that season. They. We talk, we've talked about San Diego State a few times this year. As always, they had a fantastic defense that season, like they always do. But they finished the year as Ken Palm's number 11 offense. Malachi Flynn, one of the best players in the country that season. Really fun guy to watch. A really fun team to watch. And unfortunately, they never got a chance to show it on the big stage. So no tournament that year. They make the tournament in 2021 as a sixth seed losing the first round to Syracuse. They make the tournament last year as an eight seed, losing the first round to Creighton, the very same Creighton team they just beat to go to the Final Four. So this is a program that has been very successful, certainly in the regular season. Steve Fisher took them to two Sweet 16s, one in 2011, one in 2014, but they have been a consistently good program since the start of the 2009 2010 season. They had seemed to be hitting a little bit of a bump in the road and unable to really advance come tournament time. Brian Dutcher had not won an NCAA tournament game at San Diego State until this season. And everything came tumbling down. Everything fell the right way for San Diego State. And here they are in the Final Four. So to me, they are at the start of something because this is a chance for San Diego State to take what was already, what was in my estimation, the best mid-major program outside of Gonzaga, and Gonzaga can barely be considered 
a mid-major at this point. And now they have a chance to sell a final four to recruits, to sell a final four to its fan base. There's been discussion about San Diego State being a candidate for for membership in the Pac-12. This is a program that I think, despite Brian Dutcher, I believe, is in his 60s, you know, potentially, I mean, he could coach for, for much longer, but he could decide to step away at some point, too. Either way, I think this is a program that is positioned to just continue rolling and maybe take a, a step up. This isn't a fluke. This is something they've been working for for a long time. They have an identity. They are competitive each and every year in that conference. Um, and now they have finally been able to get over the hump, not just win a game, not get to a Sweet 16, but go all the way to a Final Four. And I think this is the start of something, not the end of something for San Diego State. UConn is the other program that is very clearly at the start of something. I already went through a little bit of their history a second ago, but UConn uh, is, to me, a blue blood basketball program. To me, there is North Carolina, Duke, Kentucky, UCLA, and then I would put Connecticut ahead of Indiana. In the modern era of college basketball, in, you know, the time that that people really remember and care about, UConn has won national championships at every step of the way. 99, 2004, 2011, 2014. If they win one in 2023, I mean, anybody, really anybody between the ages of, I don't know, let's go, how old are you when you start watching sports? Seven. Anybody between the ages of seven and to 100 remembers a time where UConn was excellent and national championship caliber. For somebody around my age who's in their 30s, I mean, I that 99 title with UConn, that was one of my kind of early national championship memories. Like, watched Maryland, certainly liked college basketball, but this was, I was 10 years old when that title took place. That's when I, I was really getting into college basketball. And so they won a title when I was 10 years old. They won a title when I was 15 years old. They won a title when I was 22 years old. Like, all throughout my childhood, all through and becoming teenage years into becoming an adult, UConn was there. And now they have a chance to be there again when I'm 30. And to me, that's much more relevant than an Indiana program that, you know, yeah, they went undefeated in the 70s, uh, but uh, I don't think of Indiana as truly a power. I think Bob Knight, let's, so their last title was 1987. Uh, I don't, I think Bob Knight retired. What year did Bob, or not retire? Bob Knight, uh, last year at Indiana was 2000. But even his last several years at Indiana, I'll just run down his last five years and what what their Big Ten record was and what seed they got in the tournament. 2000, 10 and 6, 6 seed. 99, 9 and 7, 6 seed. 98, 9 and 7, 7 seed. 97, 9 and 9, 8 seed. Uh, 96, 12 and 6, 6 seed. And there's some asterisks there, so... 
guessing there must have been um, asterisk for some reason. Maybe that's, uh, let's see, indicate season for which the school's overall and or conference record has been adjusted by penalty. So there was some, uh, there was something going on that year. I don't know exactly what, but the bottom line is in the NCAA tournament in that year, they got a six seed. Like, that's not blue blood. In my life, in my life, my, my kind of college basketball watching life, let's call it since I was five years old. So let's start with the 93-94 season. Indiana, I believe, has gotten one number one seed in my entire life in my entire basketball-watching life. Since I was five years old, Indiana has gotten one number one seed since I was five years old. Their next best seed line, they've gotten a four seed a couple times. So to me, if I think about the team, the program that's won four national championships in my life, or the program that's gotten a one seed just one time since I was five years old. Yeah, I'm going UConn as the blue blood. So uh, a little bit of, of a digression there about UConn versus Indiana and the fact that UConn is a blue blood. But I, I think they are at the start of something because UConn, um, this is now, what, their fifth year with Dan Hurley at the helm, and things did not go swimmingly to start. They, they really didn't, and they've had some struggles the past couple years advancing in the NCAA tournament. Um, a couple years ago, they had James Booknight, and they lost in the first round, and it seems like, okay, they can't win a tournament game with James Booknight, who is an absolute star. They lost to Maryland, actually, in a 7-10 game. They were a 7, Maryland was a 10. They're like, okay, maybe there's something going on here. Like, why can't they advance in the tournament? And this year, they completely turned on the Jets come tournament time. They had a great hot start to the season, Started 14-0, had their struggles, finished really strong, and then the tournament has just been a bloodbath for anybody who has stepped in their path. And UConn, I think, has the potential to really pick things up and keep it going for the long term because of their history, because of their reputation, because of their historical ability to recruit. And uh, when you have that all of that to sell, plus you're coming off a of Final Four, I think, you know, this is a program that is clearly on the rise. I think it's a start of something more. I think being back in the Big East and away from the American Athletic Conference is huge for them. And I, I think this is a program that is certainly on the rise. As far as the other two, FAU is an unbelievable story. But it feels more like a one-off to me. When you talk to anybody or listen to anybody talk, you hear that there's just not a ton of investment in that program. And they're going to have to invest. They're going to have to invest to keep Dusty May, but they're also going to have to invest to probably keep some of these guys who have become stars on this tournament run. They have a really good team. They have a really fun team. They have a lot of guys that are sophomores, that are juniors. And if they want to keep them, there's going to have to be some NIL investment. I don't know how much that is there. So to me, FAU feels like much more of a fluke than the San Diego State run does. Not to say that they haven't done a fantastic job, that Dusty May is not a great coach, but when I think about, you know, 
what San Diego State has proven over the long run. I mean, ask George Mason. George Mason went to that Final Four, and George Mason had success in years to come, but they haven't got anywhere near back to that level. And uh, George Mason has made some investments, and it's still a, a difficult thing to accomplish. So, you know, for my money, you look at George Mason, 2006 Final Four, they've made just two tournaments since then and none since losing Jim Laranega. So it's tough. It's tough when you go on a run like this. Everybody assumes that, okay, this is starting something big, but you got to have the investment in the infrastructure behind it. Maybe they will. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but it remains to be seen. And I never assume that an investment is coming until an investment is actually made. So for me, FAU seems like probably the flukiest, the kind of, this is more of a culmination of something than the start of something. But uh, that obviously remains to be seen. Maybe they do invest, and maybe FAU goes on a big run. And let's talk about our fourth team, Miami, and the aforementioned, aforementioned Jim Laranega, who I think has done as incredible a job as any coach that I've seen in the last 20, 30 years by taking George Mason and Miami to Final Fours. I mean, what uh, just an incredible, incredible job Jim Laranega has done and he's you know he went through some lean years at Miami he he certainly did and I think Miami's in an interesting spot because Jim Laranega is not gonna coach forever Jim Laranega is a older guy he's 73 years old you know I mean it's entirely possible this could be his last season it's entirely possible he coaches five more years but you know one thing we do know is he's not coaching for 20 more years and I think for Miami though they're they're kind of the most in the middle team here because one of the things that Miami does have going for it in this era is there's been a clear commitment to NIL and the fact that they are going to be able to use NIL uh, to their advantage in player acquisition. I mean, you look at Nigel Pack. Nigel Pack transferred from Kansas State to Miami, a huge part of this team. Uh, and that's something that they can really use to their advantage going forward. So I think Miami's somewhere in the middle, but you can have all the NIL you want. You can uh, have all of that investment, all of those opportunities. And if you don't have the coach to do it, I'm not sure it really matters at the end of the day because I still do think that basketball is far more than just a collection of talent. It is not playing NBA 2K. It's not just building all-star teams. There is a, a certain amount of cohesiveness that you need to be an effective basketball team. And I think Laranega is great at doing that. He's great at putting together teams. He's great at uh, molding teams together, getting the most out of them. So for me, my question is, as long as Jim Laranega is there, I guess my statement is that as long as Jim Laranega is there at Miami, I think they can be competitive, you know, in the ACC. They can get four or five seeds every year, three to six seeds, something like that, win occasional ACC title, uh, maybe make a run to a Sweet 16 Elite Eight Final Four. But once Jim Laranega is gone, it, they have to have the right replacement. Right replacement. So to me, Miami is kind of in the middle of this whole thing. So those are my big picture thoughts here. Want to quickly get into some of the the specifics of each game. So I'm gonna quickly hit on each of these Elite Eight games. As far as the FAU Kansas State game goes, 
the big thing that stood out to me was FAU's ability to hit the offensive glass. And I'll see if I can find the stats here, but FAU had a couple huge offensive rebounds late in that game that essentially allowed them to win the game, even as Marquise Noel was absolutely going off. Uh, Here's the stat. Here is the stat. FAU had 14 offensive rebounds to Kansas State's five. Golden, their big man, had six by himself. And they had a huge offensive rebound off a missed free throw with about, I don't know, under two minutes left in that game when it was a one-possession game. That was absolutely monster. They got those second-chance opportunities, and they really needed it because they turned the ball over 22 times. So without those offensive rebounds, I don't know what happens. I don't think they win that game. I hated to see Marquise Noel go out. I hated to see this Kansas State team go out because I love them. I love the way they played. I love the way Noel passes. I love the way he creates. He went off for 30 points in that game against FAU, and FAU did a really good job on that possession of getting the ball out of his hands. He did not have the ball in his hands. Kansas State never got a shot off. They ended up falling by a three. So that the that offensive rebounding was my takeaway from the FAU-Kansas State Elite game. From a UConn-Gonzaga perspective, the thing that I just have to come right out and say is I was wrong about UConn. I did not believe in their ability to consistently put together 40 minutes every night, especially against equal talent. I did not think they were consistent enough to get here. I had doubts about their lack of having a true point guard, and I was wrong, wrong, wrong. None of it seems to matter at all. UConn is playing fantastic basketball right now. You know, UConn is playing great defense, and I think the style of officiating in this tournament is beneficial to them. And I, this is not like a this is not a cop out. This is not me saying, oh, like UConn fouls a lot or they're getting a beneficial whistle. UConn is a very good physical defensive team. They got called for a ton of fouls in the Big East, and they're still get, getting called for fouls in this tournament. I mean, they had. 18 fouls in the game against Gonzaga. But I think the the style of officiating in this tournament has been to let a little bit more go, and they're letting a little bit more go, and I think that's to UConn's UConn's benefit because they are a big physical defensive team, and and they're taking advantage of it. So that's not a knock at all, uh, as much as it may sound like one. Jordan Hawkins, been unbelievable for them throughout the year, but particularly throughout this tournament. Against Arkansas, 24 points. Against Gonzaga, 20 points. Uh, UConn's the real deal. I was dead wrong about UConn. I think I had them 10th or 11th out of the top 16. I didn't believe in them, and I was absolutely wrong. I do want to quickly touch on Drew Timmy and the end of his college career for, for Gonzaga. Drew Timmy is a guy who has accomplished everything you can accomplish in college but win a national championship. He does have an extra year. He could come back. All indications are that he's going to call it a day after four years. But this is a guy who never shot less than 60% from inside the arc in any given year throughout his career. 
He topped out his sophomore year at 67.7% on two-pointers. Just unbelievable. He was a fun guy to watch, an emotional guy. He had the mustache. Uh, He kind of rubbed people the wrong way at times, but I always thought he was one of the most fun guys to watch, especially on that Gonzaga team a couple years ago that featured him and Jalen Suggs and Corey Kispert and Joel Ayayi. I thought he was just a a fantastic career. For Drew Timmy, I think he will go down as... I I don't want to be hyperbolic about this, but like people talk about Trace Jackson Davis going down as like an all-time great at Indiana. I think Drew Timmy, much, much better career than Trace Jackson Davis. I think Drew Timmy will go down as a all-time great in the sport of college basketball. How high? I need to think about that one a little bit more before I can pin him down to like a top X. But in this era, let's just call it this four-year, you know, maybe we end up having like a six year COVID era, essentially. It's the guys who were freshmen in 2020, 2021 will be the last of, will be the last ones left. So they still have two more years to play those guys that were, uh, that were freshmen then. So by the end of the, so let's, let's just call it the 2020 through 2025 seasons will maybe be this like COVID era where we're, still kind of dealing with that's the 2020 was the year that the tournament got canceled. Then the next year is we had the, uh, the bubble tournament. And then until 2025, we'll have guys utilizing their extra COVID year. I think he will go down. And I think I can easily make the argument that he is the best player of that era. And I don't even need to see what happens over the next two years to, to definitive, to definitively make that statement because his career numbers speak for themselves. Okay. Maybe I do need to see what happens, but right now he's the, let's call him the leader in the clubhouse as the best player of the COVID era, 2020 to 2025. But I just want to give a big salute to Drew Timmy, a big round of applause for everything that he's accomplished because I've, I've enjoyed watching him over the past several years at uh, Gonzaga, and it's a shame to see his career come to an end. In San Diego State, Creighton, I got to make this one a little bit personal because on this very podcast, I gave out a 28-1 to bet on March 3rd for the San Diego State Aztecs to make the Final Four. And you better believe when I hit a bet like that, I'm going to celebrate it because there's been plenty that I have lost and people give me a hard time about. So when I hit a 28-1 to on San Diego State to make the Final Four. And boy, oh boy, am I going to celebrate that one. So as I speak on this game, please know that I did have a bit of a vested interest in San Diego State winning it. Uh, But the controversial thing about this game was the foul call at the very end that gave San Diego State those two free throws in a tied ball game. And again, I had a bit of a vested interest in it. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. But I did not have a problem with that foul call. I felt like the defender gained a clear advantage on that play. He threw off the the shot, the timing of the shooter. And to me, it was very similar to the holding call in the Super Bowl, where the receiver beat the defensive back and the defensive back did something to hold him up. In this game, the... Offensive player beat the defensive player. The defensive player on Creighton had to do something to throw his timing off. And to me, it's just as bad. 
to not call a foul at the end of the game just because you don't want to decide the game as it is to call a foul. So, you know, no matter what happened there, somebody was going to complain. Some fan base was going to be upset, but it's more the neutral observer that just says, you can't call a foul in that situation. That really drives me crazy because you have to call a foul. If it's a foul, it's a foul. Like, I don't understand that whole line of thinking that you can't call a foul because you just can't call a foul at the end of the game. At the end of the game, you have to have this special set of rules where it's no holds barred, anything goes, all contact is legal, anything short of tackling a guy just cannot and will not be called a foul. And, you know, it wasn't the greatest contact, the amount of contact in the world. It wasn't... uh, up high. It wasn't by the ball. It was more subtle. But again, that's why I liken it to the holding call on the Eagles in the Super Bowl. I thought it was very, very similar where the offensive player beat his man and the defender had to do something as subtle as it was to throw off the offensive player. So at the end of the day, I was fine with the call. I had a vested interest in San Diego State. It was the most fun bet I've ever hit, but I had a vested, so I had a vested interest in it. But I really, I think looking at this through an objective lens, I was perfectly fine with it, just like I was perfectly fine with the holding call in the Super Bowl. The other thing that stuck out to me about that game was just there there was a lot of missed shots inside in that game and you know a lot of that credit goes to goes to the big men on both sides for really impacting the game for making it hard for for guys to get clean looks inside but there was some some just miss miss shots as well miss layups as well so those are kind of my takeaways those were the things that stood out to me from that game in the Miami Texas game Look, Jordan Miller, Jordan Miller was the player of that game, the the person, thing, storyline, anything you want to call it. That is what stands out to me from that Miami-Texas game. Um, He was perfect from the field. He was perfect from the free throw line, and he scored 27 points. He scored 27 points in, in an Elite Eight game where I thought Texas was going to walk away with it at one point. I really, really did. I thought Texas was going to walk away from this game. And I think Texas missed Dylan DeSue. I think you saw that with the number of threes they shot. They shot 25 threes in that game. And I think they were really missing. Dylan DeSue had become such a big part of this team and a huge part of their offense. It gave them another threat. It gave them another dimension, and they didn't have him. But the story of this game, again, Jordan Miller, 7 for 7 from the field, 13 for 13 from the free throw line for 27 points as Miami wins 88 to 81. And, you know, I've been talking all year long about whether Miami's offense can overcome its defense. Well, Miami's defense actually showed up in a pretty big way in the second half, and Miami turned Texas into a jump-shooting team in that second half, uh, especially late in the game, and I was really impressed. You know, I think Miami uh, at its Miami was down by 13 points, 64 to 51 with 12:37 to go. And 
for a long time there, Texas was stuck around 70, 72 points. Uh, they were up. Texas was up 64 to 51 with 12.37 to go. Actually, it was a little, even a little earlier than that. 13.30 to go. Texas did not score its 72nd point until 8.07 to go. So really good job defensively there. Uh, and that's when Miami made their run. So Miami's offense did do enough. It did, or defense rather, did enough to allow its offense to do what it needed to do. Miami puts up 88 points. Miami is just a machine scoring in the, you know, scoring 80, 90 points. In its last three NCAA tournament games against Indiana, Houston, and Texas, 85, 89, and 88 points. They are a fun team to watch, and what a performance by Jordan Miller in the Elite Eight. Those are my thoughts on the Elite Eight. I thought it was a great round. I thought it was a fun weekend, and I think it's going to be a really fun Final Four. I'm looking forward to watching it. I'm looking forward to breaking it down, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Enjoy the games this week. Enjoy the Final Four, everybody. Until next time, keep the grill hot and the cooler cold.